Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. You know, Joe, I've, I've long held a fascination with underground transit systems. Oh, yeah? I, yeah. I like them, too. Yeah, I mean... They're a totally unique uh, space. They are, and it's... You know, and it's one of those things. I, I grew up in a in more of a, a rural environment, uh-huh. and then later in my life moved into uh, urban environments where I actually have and have had access to these various underground train systems, and have traveled to places, uh, you know, such as such as New York and London, where they have the most famous examples of the underground transit system. But it, no matter where I am in that timeline, they're always just as fascinating to me, whether there's something that I only see in a horror movie mm-hmm. or something that is a part of my day to day life, just getting to and from work. They are uh, such a unique environment and such a cool thing. I, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm kind of fascinated with them when I so I made it this far in my life without ever going to New York until this past year. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to New York for the first time. And when I came back, like the main thing I wanted to talk to everybody about was the subway. I know. Yeah. I was like, it's amazing. There's stations everywhere. You can, you know, just, just around the corner, you can go right in, get to wherever you're going. It's it, like, this is how a city should work. Yeah. And it's also one of those cases where you, you grow up watching all these movies. It's mm-hmm. such a, a it's such a location, a fitting location for not only, you know, horror and monsters and mutants and chuds, but but also just intrigue, like interesting characters going places. And they do so by traversing the underworld. Yeah. Who's that woman in the overcoat with the collar up at the other end of the station? Did she just look at me? What's going on? Am yeah. I being followed? Uh, but, yeah, I like that you mentioned the chuds because that is another aspect of what's great about Subway systems, generally any underground transportation. Are there other underground? <laughs> I said that as if there's like underground buses or uh, canals. I'm not sure if there are. But uh yeah, so the, the underground trains, the tunnels, the tube, all this stuff. When you go down into these spaces, it is F, it, 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 you're literally entering a sub world yeah. where there is a whole infrastructure. There's like a city under the city. And in many of the big stations, there are things in the stations underneath the city, right? It's not mm-hmm. just like the train comes by, but there's like little shops and counters and stuff like that. Um and it's uh it it's this whole other world that's divorced from the sun it's separated by this solid barrier and it's this alien environment where it seems like unnatural things could happen yeah it's a true underworld we myth cycles around the world for for ages have have had tales of underworlds and uh, and, and people that live underground races that live underground and it wasn't until uh, relatively modern times that we made that truly possible and they still have the the mythic allure that they had uh, you know back when they were just a dream so is that what we're going to be talking about today morlocks well in a sense because uh because we are going to be talk because we are going to bring this back around to science we are going to talk about the the about the question what if a species becomes trapped in the underworld what happens over time can it become a different species altogether? Can it become a a subspecies? And we have one uh, very interesting example of that occurring. All right. Well, one of the ways we know you can create a new species or a new subspecies is to significantly alter the environment in which you live, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so this, I guess, is why we're emphasizing this this alien world quality to the, you know, there are unnatural underground systems. Yeah, indeed. And and it's it's something that, again, we've continued to, to read into it. We create these worlds and then we stand back and we say, wow, these are this is really strange what we've done here with this completely artificial environment underground. And countless uh, writers and dreamers, filmmakers have have taken that and explored that territory. Uh, two examples that come to mind are uh, Robert uh, Barber Johnson's uh, short story, Far Below, which is about ghouls in the tunnels uh, beneath the, beneath New York City. Wait, w- when is that written? Uh, that was like a weird tale, like a classic weird tale story. I can't remember the publication date offhand, but it's like, you know, classic 20th century like American weird fiction. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so that's a great one if anyone wants to check that out. And then if anyone out there, uh, and I'm sure a lot of you are, Fans of Neil Gaiman's work, um, uh, he has explored this as well. The idea that the the London Underground uh, specifically is a gateway to uh, a, a mystical fairy world. Yeah, why wouldn't it be? Yeah, and uh, you know a lot of this spills over in, into reality too in interesting ways. Uh, the the author Peter Ackroyd has a, has a wonderful book about London titled London, a biography. And uh, he points out several different, just really weird, fascinating facts about the the London underground. Mm -hmm. Um, This is one of my favorite quotes that I always think about when I think about the the tube. He says, it is a strange city beneath the ground, perhaps best exemplified by worn manhole covers, which instead of reading self-locking spell out Elf King, <laughs> which is great. I just I can't ha- shake that image of like looking down. Here's this man-made portal into the underworld, and it says Elf King, like it literally, uh, you know, names the, the it, it spells out the dominion of of uh, this ancient fairy lord that's sh- surely ruling over everything down below. I thought of just one more reason why subway tunnels are so intriguing. It's because you travel through them, but you don't get to explore them. You can't go on foot. Yeah, all you can do is look out. That's one of the things I love about traveling uh, by underground train is you look out and inevitably there's like a forking tunnel or there's yeah. some sort of strange door or work area or uh, wait, what's that? Yeah. What is that? Uh, that's that space off to the left here. Mm-hmm. And then you read about things such as ghost stations, of which there are several in in London. There are a few in New York. And wait, are, what is that? It's a station that just isn't used anymore. Just an empty station. Uh, and these occur with any train system also above the ground, but just the idea of going through this old place occupied now only by ghosts and maybe fading posters. Uh, it's just, it's just so rich. Or maybe some insect Morlocks. It's true. That's true. We'll get to that. Now, one film in particular that comes to mind, um, on this topic is a, a 1972 film, uh, by the name of Deathline. And in the U.S., it came out under the title Raw Meat. And uh, it's it's an interesting film. It's a uh, it's about a family of cannibals mm-hmm. descended from Victorian railway workers who wind up buried alive in the tunnels beneath London. And, uh, and I know that sounds incredible, but believe it or not, the best part of the film, or at least as far as I'm concerned, is that Donald Pleasance is in it. And he plays, instead of playing like a stuffy academic or some sort of uh, nefarious egghead, uh, as he was wont to do, uh, he plays a blue-collar police inspector named uh, Inspector Calhoun. I don't believe you. He, oh, you've got to check it out. Pleasance He's, as blue-collar? Like yeah. he goes and gets a pint of beer at the pub? There's like, a, as I recall, there's an extended scene. Sequence in which he and his friend go and get a get a, a beer at, at the pub, and it seems to go on for a very long time. And I don't remember how it connects really to the plot of the film, mm. but at the time it felt 
it felt as if the director was saying, hey, this this guy's more interesting than all this cannibal stuff. Let's just follow him for a while and then we'll come back to the uh, to the to the weird cannibal dude. But with that voice, barkeep, another pint of ale. Ah, he, he didn't talk like that. That's one of the wonderful things about this. It's this uh, this more lively pleasance, more lively than, than pretty much any anything else I've seen him in. OK, but he's not an underground cannibal. No, he's just the police inspector. All right. So where do the underground cannibals come in? Well, uh, it's the Victorian workers, the guys, right. the people who got trapped underground. They have uh, turned into a different subspecies of human down there. And essentially, they look like cavemen. So they haven't gone full the descent here and turned into uh, more ghoulish characters. But there's basically one of these guys left. He's this shaggy caveman of a dude. And he just goes about... Uh, kind of oozing from sores and growling and screaming and then attacking people and eating people. So if this is from Victorian times, obviously this would not be enough time or enough generations to produce a true human subspecies adapted to underground tunnels right. to produce cannibalistic Morlocks. You, since Victorian times to the 1970s, what would you have had? You know, a few generations. Yeah. And, and to the movie's credit, yeah, they don't look like alien monsters. They look like shaggy humans or the, the one that we see looks like a shaggy human. And, uh, yeah, he goes about causing all this chaos and it's a fair warning. It's a disturbingly violent film at times. It's a bit icky to watch. So you're not necessarily saying go out and watch it. Not necessarily. I mean, go, go watch the trailer. And if you can see a, a scene with Pleasance in it, uh, and if, you know, dark, violent seventies horror is your thing, then do check it out. But, uh, but I bring it up because this ties directly into the, the, the real world science we're talking about today. The, the question, if a creature is locked away, buried in the tubes beneath London, and it has time to undergo generation after generation of uh, of change and adaptation, can it become a different species? Can it become a subspecies? What happens when the uh, the dark underworld gets to do its work on natural world creatures? All right. Well, we should take a quick break. And when we come back, we will discuss the London underground mosquito. Okay, we're back. So the London Underground Mosquito is going to be what we're talking about today. You can probably guess from the name that it lives in the London Underground. So what's the deal with the London Underground, Robert? Yeah, I suppose we should just back up a few steps and just talk about the the tube itself. The environment in yeah. which it dwells. Indeed. This is... Uh this was the the world's first underground railway, opening in 1863. Man, that's early. Yeah, I would not have believed that. It's a uh, it's grown and expanded significantly ever since then. And so today, you got 11 lines collect, and they collectively handle about uh, 4.8 million passengers a day through 270 stations and 250 miles or 400 kilometers of track. Now, despite the name, it's worth keeping in mind that only 45 percent. Of that is actually underground. There's mm-hmm. plenty, you know, plenty, plenty of track that goes above ground, but still, that's a lot of underground track. Okay, so the London Underground Mosquito. That's the London Underground part. Mm-hmm. Mosquito part. Okay, yeah. Let's talk about mosquitoes for a second. <laughs> so, every- what are they? Are they? <laughs> is that some kind of elephant? I can't remember. Well, it's interesting because the mosquito. We all know what the mosquito is. We all have a, a, a very um, close relationship with it. It mm-hmm. is uh, 
or at least we have a very close relationship with a few types of mosquito. And that's key because the world is currently home to some 3,500 named species of mosquitoes. And of those 3,500, only 200 or so actually bother humans. Uh, but, you know, we're kind of irresistible, right? Like the mosquito, we thrive with ease throughout most of the world, and we offer large expanses of relatively hairless skin, all of it coursing with delicious blood. Oh, man, you don't usually think about hair as being such of a, a protective mechanism against parasitism like that. But yeah, I mean, like if you're a mosquito and you come up against something really hairy, that's almost like trying to get through barbed wire. Yeah. And we're, we're large organisms compared to, you know, most organisms. We're, we're large, relatively hairless, and we're everywhere. And so the mosquito is everywhere. Now, the most common uh, genera here are going to be the Anopheles, the Culex, and the Aedes mosquitoes. Now, mosquitoes obviously are accomplished flyers, and anyone who's ever tried to kill a mosquito can testify to this. Right. I had a as a, a tangent here when I was recently um, in Barbados. I, uh, I, I we largely didn't encounter mosquitoes at all. But we had, uh, you know, the Zika virus on our minds. So we were always on the lookout. And I was trapped in the, the room by myself at one point with one mosquito. Ugh. And it seems like it took forever for me to, to kill it. I finally had to do that trick where you're like, all right, I'm going to let you land on me. I'm going to let I'm going to I'm going to let you feed or almost feed on me. And and, I, and I'll do it just to protect my family from you. <laughs> I'll offer myself up as a sacrifice and then I will kill you. But that's just often the only way you can get them. They're so surprisingly uh, skilled at, at at getting out of the way of our, our slaps and smacks. Well, thanks for exposing me to Zika now, Robert. <laughs> oh, it's all right. I, I was not infected. Uh, so maybe I killed it in well, time. That's good to or hear. It was, uh, or it was one of, you know, it was uh, not uh, infected itself. Well, you know, you do hear about uh, how these uh, mosquito species can traverse these long distances that you wouldn't expect. In one of the things we were reading today, it was an excerpt from a book by a biologist named David Resnick, who we'll get into more detail about later. But... Uh, he mentions the fact that, you know, it used to be that Hawaii didn't have mosquitoes that would bite humans. Mm. Oh, yeah. They got imported. Not on purpose, I think. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a great thing? No, no, but they're like a lot of species. They uh, they they have a t- tremendous ability to hitch rides yeah. uh, on human transport. So they've managed to uh, invade whole new continents, uh, such as uh, the invasive yellow fever carrying uh, 80s aegypti that you find in South America, which has been quite a problem. Uh-huh. Um, they also, another cool thing to keep in mind about mosquitoes is they benefit from an incredibly fast reproductive cycle. Now, this is going to be important once we start talking about the rates of evolution. That's right. Uh, yeah, just ha- how, because for the rate of rev- evolution to to, uh, to to really be visible, you have to have short uh, periods. You have short lifespans and, and fast reproduction cycle. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, indeed, that's the case here. All they need is the tiniest bit of standing water. Uh, you know, abandoned swimming pools, bird baths are great, but they'll also do just fine with a, a pet bowl, even a, a candy wrapper, a small puddle of, or even just a damp spot in the earth. Mm-hmm. They go through four stages, uh, adult water surface eggs, subsurface larvae that breathe through a, a kind of snorkel that uh, pokes up uh, through the surface of the water and uh, a pupa stage. Now they've been around roughly 100 million years. Isn't that great to think about? Well, actually, it's not all that unusual because we've all seen Jurassic Park. But had we not, wouldn't it be fascinating to think about these little insects biting dinosaurs? Yeah. Yeah. Just to think that this this is something that uh, they've been so good at for so long Mm -hmm. and uh, they're going to they're not going away. 
the oldest evidence we have for blood feeding mosquitoes comes from a fossil that's uh, known as proto mosquito. And this is from the Triassic period about 220 million years ago. Uh, so there were no flowering plants. So the elongated proboscis is thought to have functioned like modern mosquitoes, you know, mm. for the drinking of blood. Oh, you mean so it's like since there weren't plants, it didn't it couldn't be like a hummingbird like right. sticking its nose into something. If it was sticking its nose into something, it was probably something that had blood in it. Right. That's the that's the the theory. Now, you'll find mosquitoes now on every continent except Antarctica. They thrive, and even our most exhaustive steps to eradicate them uh, often only work in the short term because, again, they, they're they just so adept at moving into new environments, taking advantage of the smallest uh, quantities of water. Okay, so we've got the two things there, the London Underground, the mosquito. Let's uh, Let's make these great tastes taste nasty together. Yeah, so first of all, let's talk about the surface mosquito before we talk about the you know, subsurface uh, variant. All right. So the species we're talking about is Culex pipiens. And according to biologist David Resnick, who I'll cite more deeply, especially toward the end of this episode, uh, pipiens is the single most widespread mosquito in the world. It's all over the place. It is a disease vector known to spread West Nile virus, as well as some forms of encephalitis and meningitis. And it mates in these big swarms that take place out in open areas. And then it deposits its fertilizer eggs in the form of a floating raft of eggs on still water. Uh, Resnick rather elegantly, I think, lists, quote, untended bird baths, forgotten buckets in the backyard, discarded automobile tires, clogged rain gutters, or wherever else fetid, stagnant water accumulates. <laughs> I love that. One of my favorite words is fetid. It's just <laughs> really good. Now, once these rafts of eggs start to hatch, they turn into, as you mentioned in the general mosquito life cycle earlier, the water-dwelling larva stage. And these larvae eat these eat small things that live in the water, you know, eat microbes for sustenance. And then about 10 days into the larval stage, they come out of the water as adults, begin feeding, and uh, begin the breeding process. So the females seek out a blood meal, which in Culex pipiens almost always comes from a bird. Why? Well, because bird blood is good stuff. Don't be a food snob at the Culex pipiens. After you've got a blood meal from a bird, you've got enough nutrition to invest in forming some eggs. And this is important because it goes blood meal, then eggs. You need the blood in order to make the eggs. Uh, and then once you've got the eggs, you can start the whole process over again with a mating swarm or what I think should be called a swargy. <laughs> oh, I like that. Swargy. And uh, it is it, it is worth noting the whole male female mosquito thing here. Right. Because the females are the ones that that feed on blood. Yeah. The males do not. Uh, and you're wondering, what do the males eat if they don't eat blood? Well, they, de- they depend, they feed on flowers and, and plants. Many, uh, many, uh, a, a beautiful swamp orchid depends on mosquitoes for the pollination. Uh, so the, the blood is directly tied to, uh, the reproductive cycle of the female. Right. So now in London, there appears to be a totally normal form of this species found on the surface doing all the normal stuff, feeding on birds, uh, getting the blood meal before reproducing. And that's, Standard Culex pipiens pipiens. Mm-hmm. But there also appears to be a subterranean variant of this species in the London Underground. That's right. And Londoners uh, uh, supposedly first discovered them during uh, the Blitz of World War II. 
So German bombers terrorized the night skies and, and roughly one, roughly 180,000 people sheltered in the tunnels, uh, just as they had during World War One. Can you imagine that? It's like you're, you're fleeing bombing of your city. And the last thing you want is to be swarmed with mosquitoes in the dark. I know. And that's what happened. They had to contend with not only mosquitoes, but apparently lice and ticks. Uh, and everyone knows about rats in the subways and, and sewers. I, to go back to my, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, childish enthusiasm for underground uh, transportation, I always get a little excited when I see a subway rat. Yeah. Even though I know too. you're not oh, yeah. supposed to see one and it's bad. It's, you know, it's, it's an infectious uh, rodent what and all that. But I still get excited because it's like, ah, it's, it's like seeing a unicorn. I don't know why. So I, I don't like to see a rat in my house, but when <laughs> I see a rat scamper across the Marta tracks, like I, I love that feeling of seeing it dart out from cover and go to somewhere else. I'm like, yeah, go buddy. It's like that scene in in The Last Unicorn. You remember at the beginning where the the old man and the younger hunter glimpse the unicorn in the distance, and the the old man like takes the the man the the kid aside and says, "You've seen something special today. <laughs> there are not many of them left in the world." You know, it's it, that's how I feel about the the the, the subway rat. Now, so you say people noticed these uh, mosquitoes in the underground in World War II, but is that when they were first there or were they there before then? The mosquitoes or the people? The mosquitoes. Oh, okay. Because it, because again, I I do want to point out that World War I, uh, you saw uh, somewhere to the tune of a third of a million Londoners going down there. And uh, there's a wonderful uh, quote here that I I ran across uh, from, uh, from Aykroyd's book, but he points out that uh, Philip Ziegler in the book London at War uh, related that, quote, one of the principal fears of the authorities is that a deep shelter mentality might grow up and result in paralysis of the will among those who succumb to it. It was also suggested that the underground Londoners would grow hysterical with fear and would never surface to perform their duties. So they were actually afraid of something sort of like the raw meat scenario. Yeah, or, like or death line that, that people would go down there to take shelter and that they would just not be able to come back up. Yeah, and I think this—it's important to to note in looking at a film like like Deathline, uh, and it feeds into just sort of the the industrial age uh, paranoia of uh, of 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 the English and and really modern Western life. The right. idea that we're we're changing our world through right. this industrial movement. Our cities are becoming these inhuman places, and like the, the underground tunnel and, and the idea of cowering down there and, you know, protecting yourselves from from the, these bombings, uh, it becomes a perfect symbol of that. Well, it is something worth thinking about, because in a biological sense, our environments really do define us. They yeah. shape our very biology. You know, the way your hands are, the way your eyes work, the way your teeth are and the way your brain defines your behavior, that's all shaped by the environment your ancestors come from. Yeah. You know, it's what genetic options the environment had to work with and then molding that to survive and reproduce best in it. So your environment does define you. I, I think that's not something to just be laughed off as paranoia. No, no. Uh, and, you know, there, there are also all these wonderful tales, you know, many probably folkloric in nature about um, people known as firmers or rakers or flushers. These were <laughs> people who cleaned sewage uh, tunnel blocks, uh-huh. as well as toshers who are hunters of valuables in the, the sewers and tunnels underneath London. These are some great uh, Britishisms. Yeah. Toshers, firmers. So there are tales of like toshers and firmers uh, uh, becoming lost in this subworld maze. And eventually they, they either fall dead from exhaustion or they grow so weak that a swarm of rats just eats them alive. Ugh. So at any rate, the humans had been, 
uh, going down beneath London for uh, some time. They had uh, created uh, this additional mythos and this uh, and these various expressions of their fear regarding the underworld. And indeed, the mosquitoes had been down there for some time, too. It, based on the research we're looking at, it seems that there it's thought that it, you had different points when mosquitoes were introduced hmm. to this underground uh, world and then they become trapped down there. But since they're that they have what they need down there, they manage to survive because there are rats. There are humans. It's where the humans go. You almost have this captive, uh, uh, ever-changing food supply. Right. So, hmm, this does make us wonder. I mean, we should start to think about, you've got these mosquitoes that live underground. Mm -hmm. You've got the mosquitoes that live above ground. They appear to both be some form of Kulex pipians. Right. But are the ones underground actually a different animal now? That is an excellent question. And after one more quick break... We shall explore it. So after the war, no one forgot about the tunnels for sure. But I I guess there was a lot else to to, to worry about. Uh, People kind of forgot about the mosquitoes down in the tubes. Uh, You didn't see a lot of attention uh, really uh, surrounding them. Occasionally, you know, there would be workers who would... Who would, uh, you know, wind up, wind up with mosquito bites and they'd report it. And certainly, you know, people who were going down there on a regular basis might have noticed them. Right. But for the most part, nobody really gave them uh, much attention. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, about 50 years after the close of World War II, you had, uh, Catherine Byrne come around. Now she was a doctoral student at the time and uh, she decided to investigate. So she collected mosquitoes from seven different subterranean sites. And in all, there were something like 20 sites covering outdoor, indoor, and subterranean locations around London. Uh, and then the, re- the researchers uh, reared the captured mosquitoes. They attempted crossbreeding, uh, crossbreeding between mosquitoes and mosquitoes, not between mosquitoes and humans, just to go <laughs> and get that out of the way. Um, and they, they found that the, um, the Kulix uh, Pipians in the underground behaved rather differently from those that lived on, on the surface. So, for example, uh, surface uh, uh, Pipians only drank the blood of birds. But this, uh, this new subspecies, this uh, Kulix uh, Pipians molestus, they call it, this one drank human blood. Now, I gotta make it worse than that. <laughs> because to, to really excite your used needle squick, they feed primarily on humans and rats. Yes. So because what else are you going to feed on down there? Yeah. So if you're down in the tube in London and you feel an itch on your neck, it's possible that the last thing that sharp little proboscis went into before your skin might have been another person or it might have been the belly of one member of a huge cockney rat king. <laughs> that's that's that a wonderful image. But yeah, that's always one of the concerns with the parasitic organism. Like who else has it been feeding on and what else has it been feeding on? Right. Uh, so yeah, so there, there was a resulting paper here, right? Published in the journal Heredity in 1999. It was a Burns paper with Richard Nickel and it was called Kulix Pipians in London Underground Tunnels, Differentiation Between Surface and Subterranean Populations. All right. So let's talk about some of these differences that we see. So, uh, the, the core, the, the core differences, of course, so we already mentioned that the mosquitoes are are consuming primarily the blood of rats and humans because that is what's yeah. down there. Mammal blood. Yeah. Now, the other things to keep in mind is that this uh, the molestus mosquitoes 
They don't need as much space anymore because uh-huh. they are living in confined tubes. And that is, uh, that, that has an impact on how they reproduce because they're not, they're then not depending on these big, uh, you know, uh, what do you, what did you call them? Swargies? These, uh, yeah, the these, big open air, open space swarming mating swarms. Yeah. These, uh, these big mating swarms are, are not occurring in the underworld. They are uh, instead going with a, you know, a smaller scale reproductive, uh, uh, breeding, uh, uh, venue. schedule, <laughs> venue, venue, if you will. Yeah. And, uh, on top of that, they are, they are largely protected from colder weather. So they forego winter hibernation. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, they don't need that blood meal necessarily to lay their eggs. Now, this is to say that, uh, to, to get technical on the blood stuff, this means that they are autogenous. They do not require a blood meal in order to lay eggs. We already mentioned how the male and female mosquitoes consume nectar and plant juices. Uh, the females in the species just need that blood meal to energize their egg production. Right. It's now, part of the reproductive cycle. Right. And if you look at mosquitoes uh, around the world, all the different species, some do require that blood meal, some don't, and some merely benefit from it, which is to say they can produce eggs without the blood meal. But if they get the blood meal, they're going to it's going to be that you know much stronger of an egg production. Yeah. So, in short, it appeared that the mosquitoes adapted to the underworld. They became so distinct, even, that they could no longer breed or would no longer breed with their surface-dwelling kin. Different, And this is because different mating behaviors, different reproductive behavior, no mating swarms, just individual lovers uh, finding each other in the, in the subway tunnels. Well, I guess this leads us to the question. Obviously, we, we've had since the beginning of the London Underground some form of divergent evolution going on here. But mm-hmm. but does this count as a different species? That's sort of the, the question, especially a layperson might want to ask. Well, right. is it really a different animal now? Uh, is it a speciation event? Yeah, because I think one of the big questions to consider is, you know, to what extent are they biologically and or behaviorally unable to breed with surface world uh, mosquitoes of their species? So these would this would be sort of the standard definition of a species division. Right. Now, of course, that this is bearing in mind that distinct but closely related species can sometimes technically breed to produce hybrid offspring, though sometimes they're infertile or otherwise compromised. Right. So I think now's a good time to uh, take a look at a chapter from a book by the biologist David Resnick, who I mentioned earlier. And uh, th- this book is called The Origin, Then and Now, An Interpretive Guide to the Origin of Species uh, that was published by Princeton University Press in 2011. And in a chapter on uh, in this book, uh, Resnick discusses the specific example of the London, London underground mosquito and whether or not it is speciation and what, what this means for the concept of speciation. Uh, so a, a central question in biology, how long does it take for evolution to form a new species? How long should you have to wait? Yeah. Uh, obviously this could depend on a lot of different factors, right? You've got different mutation rates, maybe. Um, if mutations are sort of providing the changes that lead to new, uh, new body forms and stuff like that. Uh, you've got different selection pressures. You've got different rates of reproduction. You're probably more likely to see faster evolution in organisms that produce more generations in a short period of time, like we were mentioning earlier, uh, like bacteria or even like insects like fruit flies and stuff. A very quick turnover. Yeah, I mean that's why some why fruit flies one of the reasons fruit flies are used so much in research, because you can you can watch this occur. And in, and certainly when you find examples of evolution in action, so called evolution in action, 
th- that's what you're looking at species that have those really, um, really tight turnaround in reproduction. But another thing that often leads to, uh, speciation, at least as far as we think, is having highly specific different selection pressures, putting a group in isolation and then making it, uh, very hard for that group to live except by one or two ways. And this tends to force adaptation to those new ways of life, which produce, it creates kind of a narrow adaptive bottleneck through which genes have to pass. So, um, Resnick says in his book that he, he's not certain that these mosquitoes in the London under, London underground, uh, constitute a different species. But he argues that if they're not a distinct species, they're definitely on the way in that, quote, they have moved far down the path toward forming a reproductively isolated network of populations, which is the currently accepted definition of species. So that's going to what we said a minute ago, reproductive isolation. What, what we generally think of as a species is breeds with with its own kind, doesn't breed with others. Mm-hmm. So let's review what we've said so far and add a few more things about our observations, about the, the difference between standard Culex pipians and then the ones down in the tube. So like we said, uh, surface Culex pipians mate in these swarms in open areas. The subterranean ones mate in close, cramped conditions. Um, you mentioned the winter hibernation. That's an interesting one because the surface pipians have what's known as a seasonal diapause because, come on, I mean, they live all the way up in Britain. Right. Cold winter is not a good place for mosquitoes. So it gets really cold up there during the cold weather months. Pipians stop mating. They build up a store of fat reserves and they essentially hunker down to wait out the cold weather. Um, subterranean pipians. They don't have winter to deal with. It's, you know, pretty much the same climate year round down there in the tubes, fairly warm. So they don't have this seasonal diapause anymore. They stay active all year. They stay breeding all year. They just keep going. They're like a fine wine in a wine cellar. <laughs> hermetically sealed yeah. and just uh, kept at a constant temperature. Aging, aging. aging re- acquiring finesse. Yeah. Um, biting, of, biting rat kings and then beautiful red uh, liquid as well. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so another one. Uh, we mentioned this before. Surface pipians feed almost exclusively on bird blood, right? The subterranean pipians don't have access to many birds for obvious reasons. Though this did make me think when we were talking about it earlier that it would be really cool to have a speciation event producing subterranean birds, <laughs> like uh, like albino subterranean vultures that only live in, I don't know, subway tunnels or caves or something. Oh, that'd be great. I guess the like the closest thing that comes to mind would be some, I guess, something like a kiwi, you know, that's kind of a, like a ground dwelling, like semi burrowing bird. They burrow? I didn't know that. Kiwis, uh... If I remember correctly, uh, and huh. you Kiwi experts can, uh, can correct me on this, uh, they do, they do some sort of burrowing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not like full blown, uh, you know, trimmers burrowing, but, yeah. uh, they'll, they, they dig around. Like they, they live clo- very close to the soil. Oh, well, what I want is bone white vultures with red eyes living <laughs> exclusively in caves. I could see it, see it happening. I mean, I, I look fondly back on these, uh, these these different uh, flightless prehistoric birds. So uh-huh. I like the idea of them returning in a subworld environment. 
Okay, back to the Pippians. So surface Pippians, as we mentioned before, also remember they get a blood meal before they produce their eggs. You got to get some blood, then you lay your eggs. The subterranean ones, they can easily skip the meal if necessary. Uh, the question would be why? Why can they do that? Well, down in the tunnels, there is plenty to eat in the form of water-based microbial life that the larvae consume in their larval stage. Uh, the blood is more scarce. So hmm. if you can get through your life cycle on on that, that's a good thing. Now, back to Byrne and Nichols in 1999, as you mentioned. So so we said earlier that there are other subterranean mosquitoes elsewhere in the world, right? Did we mention that? I think we did. Um, the ones in the London Underground are not the only ones where where mosquitoes are dwelling in some kind of underground space. But how can we tell whether these mosquitoes in, Lon- in the London Underground are, A, subterranean mosquitoes imported from somewhere else in the world? Mm. You know, how... Because uh, we've already discussed how... how- how skilled they are at adapting to new uh, new environments and right. traveling with humans. Or are they surface mosquitoes from London that moved underground and began to change? And this is where the genetic testing you alluded to earlier comes in. So you mentioned the mosquitoes collected from uh, different sites throughout the underground and throughout the surface. They they got mosquitoes from seven sites throughout the underground network and then 12 different sites above the surface like gardens and ponds. And what they wanted to look for was uh, genetic variation at 20 different loci within the, the uh, genes to see if the genes of the underground mosquitoes match the genes of the above ground ones or if they've got these unique alleles um, that would that would be matching to uh underground mosquitoes from other places around the world. And what they found was that the underground mosquitoes in London uh, did not have these unique alleles that were common to underground mosquitoes from other places. They had the same alleles as their above ground cousins in London. Another thing they found, interestingly, underground mosquitoes, you know, uh, maybe this isn't the correct uh, term scientifically, but they're kind of inbred. Like, Well, that would make sense. And then that comes back to death line. Like this yeah. is kind of a an, an inbred, uneducated uh, creature that's uh, walking around. Right. So there's relative homogeneity in the genes of the underground population compared to the surface. The ones on the surface have a lot more genetic diversity because they have a lot more different breeding options. Mm-hmm. The ones underground uh, were sort of like, I don't know, you might think of them as like insect Baldwin brothers, you know, a, a little <laughs> bit of variation between them, but not as much variation as you'd find within the general population. Okay. Um, so, uh, this is also what you'd expect if you had a small population of original mosquitoes that moved into the underground and began breeding with each other and had just been breeding with each other and their descendants ever since. So what's the conclusion here? Well, it looks like a small handful of colonist mosquitoes from the surface made this plunge into the darkness sometime in the past, maybe very far back, maybe when the tunnels were first being dug. Mm-hmm. Um, and they managed to survive long and uh, long enough and to reproduce enough for the environment to begin to shape their biology. But then again, as we mentioned, is it a different species? Uh, this would really come down to the aspects of reproductive isolation. If they can't interbreed, we probably think it is, uh, it is a different species. And specifically, it's if they can't interbreed 
producing viable offspring down multiple generations, because some things might be able to interbreed and produce an offspring that itself can't breed. Right. Yeah. And this is where we get into the various sterile uh, hybrids that we see with uh, with other species. Right. So what Byrne and Nichols found was uh, that the underground mosquitoes could interbreed with one another and produce fertile offspring, but every time they tried to mate a female underground mosquito with a group of males from the surface, no eggs were produced. Underground females can mate successfully with underground males, but not usually with surface males. Um, so Resnick points out another really interesting thing from their research, which is how Byrne and Nichols also found evidence of mosquito colonists pushing the boundaries of habitat tolerance in both directions. Hmm. So, for example, uh, at the Oval Station in the other ground, they found surface mosquitoes were trying to survive under the surface in a flooded tunnel at the bottom of an open shaft. They were trying to live underground, but they still these uh, surface mosquitoes trying to live underground still needed a blood meal to produce eggs and they couldn't breed with the underground mosquitoes. Okay. Meanwhile, a colony of underground mosquitoes was discovered biting humans in houses in southeast London. Huh. So they were trying to migrate up and live on the surface, but they were genetically similar to the underground mosquitoes. And unfortunately for them, they don't know how to do this winter diapause, you know, <laughs> the, the seasonal diapause. They they can't hunker down for the cold weather. So when it comes along, it will smite them. Huh. See, now this is an idea that isn't explored enough in our various weird fictions. Not the idea that there's some sort of an underground humanoid species, but the idea that the underground humanoid species then comes up and maybe tries, you know, they try to get jobs. Yeah, they, they can't they, adapt. They move into a flat, and they just fail horribly because, of course, they're they're cannibalistic monsters. Well, they'll they they will be used to a very uh, constant environmental condition to you know climate control. Essentially, you know, caves mm-hmm. are sort of climate controlled. Yeah, when they come up to the surface, summer and winter, it's going to be awful. They're going to be like, <laughs> "What is this water pouring out of my armpits? I hate it." <laughs> Uh, you know, it, I guess in a way it's kind of the vampire myth as we often encounter it is kind of a play on this because you think of, you think of old, uh, Count Dracula. Yeah. Coming over to London, imported like a mosquito and then the hold of a ship. Uh-huh. Um, very limited in what he can do outside during the day. Uh, so, so maybe it has been explored, uh, uh, you know. To, to ad nauseum already. <laughs> uh, so the authors of the original study, they, they were careful not actually to get drawn into a big argument about whether the two populations are technically different species or not, but they were more focused on the process of speciation uh, rather than trying to arbitrate the dividing line. But uh, e- even if these two mosquitoes are not now separate species, they're clearly on the way there. So Resnick points out that this provides an example of reproductive isolation in many fewer generations than Darwin would have expected. And that's kind of interesting, right? You know, Darwin thought, well, you need maybe X many different generations to really produce a different species. But if we're almost there or already there with these mosquitoes, it doesn't, doesn't take nearly as long as Darwin would have guessed. But then again, keep in mind that these are mosquitoes, very fast reproductive cycle. You know, they're insects. The same thing doesn't necessarily apply to oak trees or rhinoceroses. Right. All right. So if if reproductive isolation does happen this fast, why? Well, Resnick has a couple of hypotheses in his chapter that I think are interesting. One of them is the idea of disruptive selection. Uh, and the, the way he explains this is that the survival requirements for the two environments above ground and below ground are so different 
that if you were to successfully mate a surface pipiens with an underground pipiens, its offspring would very likely have fatal deficiencies for either environment. What, you know, the, the, the traits you'd get from your mom would make you unable to live in dad's world, or oh. the traits you'd get from your dad would make you unable to live in your mom's world. Uh, and so if it's on the surface, cold weather might kill it. If it's in the other ground, it doesn't know, to, know how to hunt the right food. It can't put off the blood meal that it, you know, will have a hard time finding or something like that. And this prevents a kind of back interaction with the general population uh, of the underground mosquitoes and enforces genetic isolation. But another way to possibly explain it would be changes in reproductive behavior. So what if these two populations have diverged in a way that specifically selected breeding behaviors that are incompatible uh, think of the open area swarming versus the confined space breeding as just one example. They simply don't get down with the way the other population tends to mate, so mating doesn't happen, reinforcing reproductive isolation. And as far as I know, either of those are live options, or it could be a combination. So something to keep in mind here, as uh, Byrne points out in the paper, Quote, the differences between pippins and molestus forms seem to change from place to place within the range of the species. The ostensibly clear-cut distinction between the molestus and pippins forms in northern Europe is not so apparent in the northern Mediterranean area and may disappear in some populations further south. Yeah, and, and that makes sense because think about it. For example, one major difference between the London surface and the London underground is the presence or absence of this cold weather diapause. Uh, if there are, if there are similar above and below ground populations in consistently warm climates, they're just less likely to have this difference, right? Because the surface mosquitoes don't need to become dormant for cold weather in a place where there is no cold weather. Yes, that's a good point. So Resnick discusses a few other interesting takeaways in his chapter. Uh, one is to simply cast a sort of doubt on the total relevance of distinctions between species. Like on one hand, it's very scientifically useful to have labels for things that are alike in order to separate them from things that they are unlike. Uh, and, and really that very notion is at the core of what science is, right? Categorization of similar things with one another. But it's also true that these boundaries are kind of porous and that the concept of a species does not actually operate in reality. In reality, there are things, there are genes, there are chromosomes, there are phenotypic traits, there are environments. Uh, a species is more kind of a concept. And Resnick writes, quote, species in nature should be thought of as fluid mosaics of populations that are becoming locally adapted, uh, sometimes with the aid of similar adaptations attained by long extinct populations that adapted to similar environments. So a couple of interesting things there. One is this idea of uh, species just being many individuals with genes that are always in flux. Things are coming and going. Uh, it's not a, a standard, uh, totally defined thing with boundaries. It's just a, a family of resemblances. And then the other thing uh, is that the last part about similar adaptations attained from long extinct populations, uh, one thing that often appears to happen in cases of reproductive isolation is that some rare gene in the general population that doesn't seem to do much or provide much advantage suddenly becomes useful in a specific environment and it becomes selected for and it gets pumped up and becomes more prevalent and comes to define the new population. And it's very possible 
that this gene was something that was useful to an ancestor of this current population. So it's like that you can adapt by pulling antiques out of the past when they suddenly become useful again. You might need that blunderbuss, not now, but sometime in the future. Huh. Yeah, indeed. I mean, we, we see this in uh, various experiments where they like, they, they, they switch the epigenetic switch to say, um, you know, make chickens a little more like dinosaurs again. You yeah. Know, the, 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 some tweaking some one aspect of their uh, anatomy because that option is still there. Like the, like the options in a video game, uh, should it need to be turned on? Uh, and hopefully I didn't anthropomorphize evolution too much uh, for some of our <laughs> listeners there. Oh, we just got a complaint about that. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes it's but I think that was, that was also from somebody who didn't believe in evolution. So, huh? Okay. They said they didn't think we went far enough. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we ask, we ask you, did we go too far? Did we not go far enough? Uh, but more importantly, uh, I'd love to hear from anybody who, um, you know, shares our love for underground uh, uh, transit systems. I'd love to hear from anyone who's ever been bitten by a London underground mosquito. Yeah. Did you feel the proboscis yeah. of, of the molestus? Or, you know, it'd be great if anyone's listening to this podcast on uh, the, the train uh, in the London underground, if they are bitten by a mosquito during uh, this podcast, I think that would be a pretty magical moment as well. This magic <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, hey, if you want to check out more information on this topic, uh, go to the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com. It should be up there nice and bright on the uh, the banner. And you'll also find all the links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, and Twitter. And hey, if you are a Twitter user, uh, take part in this uh, whole tripod initiative. Use the hashtag uh, tripod with a Y to just suggest your favorite podcast, the podcast that, that, that fill your life with a little joy as you traverse the, the subway and deal with rats and mosquitoes or what have you. For my own part, I'm a big fan of Ideas with Paul Kennedy. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful uh, Canadian radio show podcast to explore a, a number of uh, tremendous uh, philosophical, scientific, artistic, uh, historic topics. It varies from week to week. Well, why don't you tell us what podcast you out there like? Uh, so if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can email us, as always, at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.